Hello and welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR and WRCR.com. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and my guest today is Dr. Arlene Klinkscale. And we'll be focusing on Dr. Klinkscale's extraordinary career in the field of education. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Lawveld House located at 20 Zucker Road in New City. We're listed on the National Register of Historic Places and a designated New York State Path Through History site. And part of our broad and challenging mission is to share the history of Rockland County with the public. And as a private nonprofit institution, not a county or state agency, the Historical Society of Rockland County depends on charitable contributions to fulfill its educational and preservation mission. We hope you will consider making a financial contribution, and you can do that safely online by visiting our website at rocklandhistory.org and clicking the Donate button at the top of the landing page. We'd love to count our radio listeners as financial supporters of the Historical Society of Rockland County. At this time, I'd like to remind our listeners that we are live today. This is a call-in show, and we welcome your phone calls. Our number here is 845 845- Four two nine one seven zero zero. That number again is eight four five four two nine seventeen hundred. At the Historical Society, we prepare a weekly feature for the Rockland Review newspaper called This Week in Rockland. And a few weeks ago, one of the articles that came up in the timeline was about Dr. Arlene Klinkscale's appointment as the school principal in Ramapo in 1969, which would be 50 years ago. And that sparked an idea to have Dr. Klinkscale appear here on the radio. So I'm delighted that you agreed to come in. Welcome, Dr. Klinkscale. Thank you. So although it's the 50th anniversary of your appointment as principal, you have worked in education longer than that. So tell us where and when you got your start. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me, Claire. Uh, I originally came here, well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, but my family was from Virginia, and I never went to school in New York. I went, my parents moved back to Virginia in time for me to go to school. So I graduated from Hampton Institute in the class of 1950. And following that, I went to Lynchburg, Virginia to teach school. And there I stayed for 10 years nine years and one year in Williamsburg, Virginia. I had a, always had a desire to teach, even from as a little girl. Teaching is the only thing that I think I ever wanted to do or ever aspired to do. What drew you to Rockland County? After working in Lynchburg, Virginia for nine years, I decided that it was time for a change. And I was attending school at Columbia University Teachers College, so I applied in their personnel office. And my first assignment was for Glen Rock, Long Island in New York. And the next one was Pearl River, New York. And I had never heard of Pearl River, New York. So I asked directions how to get here, and I I drove up to Palisades Parkway, and as many times as I had crossed the George Washington Bridge, I had never paid any attention to the Palisades Parkway. Needless to say, after five weeks in New York City, getting to the Palisades Parkway 
was like a, a real, real treat from the humdrum of the city and the fire trucks and the noise and whatever of the city. And I came up for an interview with the then superintendent, Dr. George Manning. Yeah, it must have been um, beautiful. It must have been very different well, it was than... gorgeous. The yeah. Palisades Parkway, I thought, was the prettiest road I had ever seen at, at that point. So your career has taken you across several of the county's school districts. So tell us where you've been in Rockland schools over the years. I worked in Pearl River for five years. And after five years, I had a co-worker who was moving, taking a job in the East Ramapo. It was Ramapo II then, school district. And she encouraged me to come to Ramapo II. So that's how I got to Spring Valley. I stayed in Spring Valley for 13 years. And during that time, I was excess as principal at Summit Park School and became the supervisor of special education in Ramapo II. And at the end of the year, I had had enough of that, so they advertised for a principalship in the Nyack School District. I applied for that and was a successful candidate, and that started my career in Nyack. So back in 69, when you were named principal for the first time, were you aware of how historic that moment was? No, I wasn't. The only indication that I had that it was going to be a historical moment was as I was leaving the superintendent's office after the interview. As I opened the door, he said to me, you know if you come here, you'll be pioneering. And I said, what does that mean? He said, we don't have any black teachers in Pearl River. When, when, you, when you heard that at the time, did that make you feel nervous? Was, was there any reaction? I was nervous, but for some reason, I wasn't frightened by the fact. And when I walked out of his office into the office where the secretaries were sitting, there was another black woman there from TC that I had seen on campus, and she was being interviewed. So I was convinced that he was on the road, that he wanted to really hire a black teacher. When I got back to the dormitory, there was a note in my mailbox to call him. And when I called him, he told me that the job was mine if I wanted. That's great. So as you look back on the early days of your career here in Rockland, what were some of the pressing issues for the students and the schools that you observed? When I came to Pearl River, I found a very uh, progressive school district, a very challenging school district, very interesting uh, parents who were interested in education and education really really meant something I thought to Pearl River and to the people of Pearl River. There was nothing that you could ask for as a teacher at that time that people were not willing to give you to make the situation better for children. It was a real I think concentration on education. Of course we didn't have the testing programs that they have now and so the only thing that we were interested and concerned about was educating the whole child. So that meant academics, it meant uh, taking children on field trips to uh, inspire them and to educate them because that too has a learning that many children, because children learn in different ways. So to go and see something for some child was better than trying to read it, which was a vehicle that other children could use. 
So you also served as an observer for the New York State Board of Ed. Did this role take you all around the state of New York? When I was in Ramapo II, this was during the time of the Ocean Hill-Brownsville crisis and the uh, community takeover. And uh, Commissioner Allen, James Allen was the Commissioner of Education, set up a committee of people, educators from all over the state to go into um, Ocean Hill-Brownsville to observe what was going on there so they could make a decision as to the future of, of the district. And I was one of those that was selected. Uh, Dr. Merrill Colton selected me to serve on that committee. And so we were primarily working in um, Ocean Hill-Brownsville, but we lived in New York City. And each morning we would go out as we were just going to work, so the whole state team would go. Cops, detectives, plain clothes, uniformed, non-uniformed, were in the schools all day just observing various activities. Uh, the biggest school that I went in was uh, IS-271, and it was very interesting that um, a reporter for the New York Post spent a whole day in school talking to people, and nobody knew that it was a reporter until the article came out in the paper. <laughs> uh, I, I was in a classroom with the, un the chief union uh, person. He was trying to teach a class in science there were six plainclothes detectives in the room. There were six uniformed police in the room. And there were six state observers in the room at one time. And the young, the young people were so, they were so rude to him. And finally, after about 10 minutes, he said, I can't take it anymore. Took his coat and walked out the classroom. And he was reassigned to the um, central office. Wow. What a memory you have. That's incredible. Later, you became the superintendent of schools in Nyack. And of course, this was another historical first, this time the first African-American woman to lead a school district in the state of New York. And though I don't have the statistics, you were probably among a very few in the nation at that time. Did you feel that all of your past work had led you to that point? Yes, I think so. And I think it was also a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Uh, you must include the fact that I had served as principal of Valley Cottage School three years prior to becoming the superintendent of schools in, in Nyack. I found an autograph book recently, and I was looking through it. It's dated 1946, and there's a, a message in there from my mother and father that said to me, always do the best you can and the best will come back to you. And so all the way, th all the way through my career, I have tried to do that. I have tried to give 110% to every job that I have ever had. So I feel that the becoming the superintendent, the persons who were responsible for that saw something in me that they thought would help NIAC at that particular time, and they were willing to take the chance and give me the opportunity. And did you observe in Nyack at that time special challenges that you hadn't seen in other schools? Not really. I have been very fortunate in all of the places that I worked in Rockland County because I was very well received 
in every place. I remember when I went to Nyack as a as a building principal. The first I went to Nyack, I started it there uh, in March, and I had only been on the job for a week. And on that Friday was would was payday, but I had no reason to think that it was payday for me because I had just gotten there. But would you believe that the president of the administrators union picked up my check and brought it to me at Valley Cottage School on the first Friday that I worked in Naya. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> so I always felt welcome and I've always tried to treat people right. I've always tried to respect people. I'm very high on respect and I like to be respected. And I will tell you, you don't have to um, you don't have to love me, and you don't have to socialize with me, but there's a degree of respect that I demand. Excellent. You're listening to WRCR and Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and my guest is Dr. Arlene Klinkscale, and we're speaking about her extraordinary career in the field of education, and we're live in the WRCR studios, and we welcome your phone calls. If you have a comment or a question, please call us. Our number here is 845-429-1700. That number again is 845-429-1700. So in 1983, Ebony Magazine named you a, quote, superwoman of education, unquote. How did that come about? Well, this goes back to what you said earlier about the fact that being a black woman superintendent was, uh, there were not very many of us. And we were honored, um, many of us were honored uh, by the Black Political Caucus in Washington, D.C. And following that, Ebony Magazine, if you've seen the article, you will note that there are women from various places that's in the article. And they sent their photographer to the district. So the young lady that's in the picture was a student at the middle school at that particular time. She now lives in Nyack. Um, but um, that was what gave rise to this that it was such an oddity that we that they had black women that they featured it in an article called the superwomen of education well we have a caller so we're going to say good morning you're on the air good morning this is kathleen falling arlene Klingscale hired me twice once in 1971 in east in ramapo two and once in nyack uh, where I had a 17-year career before retiring. And I'm calling to say thank you so very much, Arlene, for being such a wonderful professional administrator and, and th- human being. <laughs> and thank you so much for calling. I, I remember with great memory when I sp- contacted you from Nyack as an irate parent. Yes, I always <laughs> tell that story. <laughs> That's when I was president of the PTA in correct. Montebello. <laughs> <laughs> and I w- didn't, uh, and then I called you to ask you for a reference to substitute teach, and you said to me, why not to go for a full-time position? <laughs> and that That's was the correct. beginning. And you had a fabulous career at Upper Nyack. Yes, yes, very lovely career. And I don't know if you know that I went on, went back to college and got another master's degree, and then subsequently taught for uh, 12 years as assistant 
professor at Dominican College in the county. No, I didn't know that. And now I am fully retired. Oh, very good. Well, I hope you're enjoying your retirement as much as I am. I am, but listening to you this morning brought back such memories, Arlene. You were just fabulous in both positions, and I think Rockland County was very lucky that you moved here. Thank you so very much, and thank you for calling in. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thanks for calling. So in that same issue of Ebony Magazine, which uh, one can read online if you go to Google Books, the article's author noted uh, the statistics show that women outnumbered men at that time in the teaching profession, but few were promoted to top administrative leadership roles. How do you think the women's movement impacted the change in leadership in schools? I think women coming in, uh, we had a conference that was dedicated to women in leadership positions in schools. And I think we kind of agreed that uh, because of that, that people, we began to maybe humanize schools a little more. And we tried to make it receptive. I think that women, we had uh, at the time, Dr. Ruth Love was superintendent of schools in Chicago. And one of the things that she warned us of was that we should not become overly involved in people's personal business and trying to be the psychiatrist and answer all questions, that there was a line and we should not cross that line. And uh, that was very helpful because I think people do tend to bring things to the scene to women that they wouldn't think of sharing with uh, men. Um, one of the, Another thing that we got out of this conference was one of the reasons that we concluded that maybe women did not go into this position was because of the demands that they had. Uh, women had to take care of homes, they took care of children, they were wives, they had all of these things to do and then in addition to that you throw about seven or eight meetings. I know there were days that I would go to school and just put a change of clothes in the car and go in the ladies room and change clothes and run from one school to the other. Of course now sometimes the men didn't go to all of these things too and I think that women's leadership helped in that respect. What do you think uh, were your biggest challenges when you were a superintendent in NIAC? Well certainly our concern for the success of every child. I think every true educator wants every child to succeed and that was a, a big challenge what do you do and what do you what do you have to do in order to get this child to succeed uh, of course money is always a problem and money was a problem at at that particular time and um, then as we moved in and became more integrated the challenges the children brought to the table was of great concern i remember when we first started dealing with um, children with learning disabilities and the teachers would come in and say but I don't know how to teach this child I don't I, I don't know what is the best thing to do and I think in some respects that maybe that has added to some of the confusion that we have now that people are expected to teach things that they don't know they expected to teach uh, cultures that they're not familiar with and sometimes you just don't know when you say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing and it can cause a, quite a confusion. Recently there's been a movement to discuss representation in schools. In other words, who is teaching our children? There have been informal surveys done asking people 
when they were first in a classroom led by an African-American teacher. And it's remarkable the number of people who say that their first black teacher was a college professor. Why is representation important in the teaching profession? I think just because of what I just said. I think that um, when you have representation, you have somebody that can share with you, even if it's one person, the culture that these children are coming from. And of course now we even have the speech problem that people don't know the language. I was privileged to work in another school district after leaving Rockland County and many of the children spoke, not did not speak English. And so the children would have to interpret for the parents. So you have a, a child standing there telling the parent what the teacher is saying and relaying the conversation back. Also, I think it's a motivator. It's very, I would think that it's very difficult to be trying to prepare somebody to do a job that they never see anybody else like them doing it. Speaking of having a black professor as your first black teacher, I have a young lady that went through the school, system, school districts here in Rockland County and high, all the way through high school. In fact, all the way through college and has never had a black professor, never had a black teacher from kindergarten through college. And the first, 12, first eight years were right here in the county. So at the end of your career, did you find that the issues you tackled were different or the same as when you started? I know you talked about the financial impact and so forth, but what did you, how did you see the, the issues change? from? Well, first of all, I think, as I said in the beginning, when I first came here, I thought that we were really all about education. By the time I left, I'm not sure. I think we were a part, a part of it was education, but then we had gotten involved in a lot of other things too. Some things that I, is it, the school is becoming the reservoir for everything. And I don't think that the kid, I don't think that it should be that way. And I don't think it can be successful being that way. I don't think the teachers can be I don't think it's humanly possible for teachers to do all of the things that people expect them to do. We were trained to be educators, and I'm not sure of any other profession that there's as many add-ons as it has been with education. I often say to people, I never hear anybody, never hear of anybody going in telling a surgeon how to perform surgery. But yet people come into schools and they're going to tell us how to teach, they're going to tell us what to teach, tell us when to teach, and tell us how to teach. And we have trained, been trained to do that, and I think we have to protect our profession a little more than that. If our profession is so easy that everybody can get into it, then I don't know why we spend as much time preparing to do it as we have done or as we are doing now. You're absolutely right. That's so well said. You were telling me before we went on the air about how uh, you do mentor uh, teachers still. I mean, you, you turned 90 this year, which is amazing, and you're still mentoring. Tell us a little bit about what you're, how you're doing that. I don't, I'm not doing an organized mentoring. Uh, I'm available, and if people wish to uh, consult with me, I don't, I don't mind giving time. Uh, as I move around, and, I, and although I am 90, I still get around a little bit, and I do take advantage of giving people advice if they want it. 
but I do not impose myself on other people. Uh, I think that maybe, well, I'm being to I'm told every now and then that I have, have a lot to offer, and it has always been my belief that when you are successful, that you have a moral obligation to help somebody else if you can. And as I'm getting down through the years now, uh, there's a poem, I don't remember it right off, but it's called the, the Bridge Builder. And that's what I consider myself to be at this time. And I would like to be remembered as a builder that I'm trying to build from the past into the future because I think it's important to know something about the past in order to make the future better. You know, you, you've received countless awards over the years for your outstanding service to students, schools, and the larger Rockland community. What would you consider to be your most significant accomplishment? Well, I hope that my um, sign most significant accomplishment has been what I have been able to do for young people. If I have inspired one person and made life better for one person, if I have encouraged one child that has made a success out of their life but because of me, then I think that that has been a success. Well, I'm sure you have. I know that there are so many people who have looked up to you and who've benefited from your amazing service as an educator. Do you have anything on your bucket list now that you're retired? Not really. I would just like to uh, keep active as long as I can, and I would like to, I would like to work with people in the field of education. I, I still try to keep current about things that's going on and to move around, and maybe. I could be an inspiration to somebody. Well, I'm sure that you will continue to be. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Arlene Klinkscale, for being here. And congratulations on your anniversary, and thank you for your extraordinary contributions to our community. And thank you so much for having me. Please note that everything we talked about, as well as a recording of this broadcast, will be available on the website at the Historical Society of Rockland County. You can visit us at rocklandhistory.org. And don't forget that our next episode will be the third Monday of November. And we hope you will tune in at that time for our next episode. And we hope you'll follow us on social media. We have a growing group of friends and fans on Facebook. And you can find us tweeting on Twitter, blogging on Tumblr, and posting on Instagram. Thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR and WRCR.com. Mm -hmm.